This is your host, Caitlin Cook, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Dead Kate Bounce Experience podcast. My first guest is Brett Harrison. Brett Harrison is at the helm of one of crypto's Goliaths, and a firm that I believe will be largely responsible for onboarding the next million crypto users. He's the president of FTX US, a US-regulated cryptocurrency exchange. Prior to joining FTX US, Brett was head of semi-systematic technology at Citadel Securities, where he managed technology for the firm's options, ETF, OTC, and ADR trading globally. He began and spent the majority of his career at Jane Street, where he led the firm's algorithmic trading system development. He also previously worked at Headlands Technologies as a senior software developer. I felt that it was important to have Brett as my first guest on the podcast because he truly embodies everything that the DCBE is about, applying traditional subject matter expertise to a new frontier. More specifically, I have a huge appreciation for the balanced approach that Brett takes when it comes to bridging the gap for the masses through advocacy, education, cooperation with regulatory bodies, and being on podcasts like this one. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Brett Harrison. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency. All right, Brett, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. First one, it's an honor. Yeah, of course. And I, I did this really strategically. I told you sort of offline, but one of the one of the hills that I will die on talking about crypto, talking about decentralized finance is that the people who have that deep subject matter expertise from the traditional side are going to be the ones driving the, you know, sustainable long-term like tech innovations on this side of things as well, right? Because if you have that context, you know that this is what we're starting with and this is where we can go because you know it inside and out. Um, so kind of want to start with setting the scene there. You come from a really long background in finance um, and very um, doing a lot of different things as well. So what did your background in finance, traditional finance consist of? And really, what was your turning point to making the jump into crypto to begin with? So hopefully not too long. I mean, I, I'm not that old yet. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, regretted maybe, it maybe as soon as I said to, it. <laughs> uh, maybe compared to some of the 14-year-old developers I see on Twitter who are crushing it, <laughs> I'm a little bit old. Um, so I, I got my start, I guess, well, starting in, in college, I studied computer science and I wanted to be a programmer and uh, wasn't sure at the time what I was going to do with that. It wasn't obvious at that point in, in, in you know America exactly all of the incredible opportunities you're going to have being a computer programmer. Um, so I thought either I'd go work at Google or stay and be a teacher. And, and I had a bunch of friends who were then going into some of the early internships in quantitative finance, places like DE Shaw, some of them at, at Ren Renaissance Technologies, um, Bridgewater. And then I had a couple of friends who were going to Jane Street. And I kind of asked them, you know, well, what is this finance quant thing that you guys are doing? And they're like, well, you should try it. And so I got an internship at Jane Street um, in 2009. And just absolutely loved the environment, just really fell in love with the subject matter, all the domain specific knowledge that you needed to have to be able to succeed there. Um, the unbelievably bright individuals who had gone into quantitative finance from physics and chemistry and math and computer science majors and, and other things as well. 
And so I loved it and went back there full time. And I was there for, uh, for eight years from like 2010, 2018 and uh, grew while I was there to, um, so taking over like algorithmic trading systems development. Uh, so that was the, the team that was building all of the automated trading systems and the market data handlers, the low latency order entry gateways, and all of the technology that was sort of like the closest to the, the, the business of what Jane Street did, which was um, sort of like medium frequency arbitrage in various kinds of derivatives. And it was actually while I was there that I overlapped with Sam Bankman-Fried, who was a trader on the international ETF desk. Uh, and we worked together on a couple of projects and recognized we had some shared interests and in things like veganism and animal welfare and stuff like that. And then uh, we went separate paths for a while. I moved to Chicago, followed my wife there to start a family, and then uh, took a few other jobs in traditional finance, most notably at Citadel Securities, um, where I was running around a team of 100 that was doing uh, options, ADR, ETF, and OTC, uh, market making and, and technology. And, and then towards the end of that tenure, um, Sam and I had kept in touch and he wanted me to come over and help run FTX US. And at the time, my only experience in crypto was doing a little bit at Jane Street when they were starting their crypto arbitrage desk, but um, saw how awesome it seemed to, to be at FTX and wanted to jump in and learn about crypto. And that's, uh, that's sort of how I got started. Love it. And off to the races from there, I guess, right? I mean, everyone, everyone even listening to this, right? Trying to more appeal to traditional finance folks, but there's no one out there unless they're living under a rock that hasn't heard of FTX, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But but trying to sort of peel the onion back a little bit on, you know, central clearing counterparts and exchanges as a whole, l- trying to talk about what it looks like on the traditional side of things versus what people are maybe quote unquote solving for on the decentralized side. What's the status quo in traditional finance on that front right now? Like, what are the barriers to entry, historically speaking, that DeFi is trying to solve for? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it's, it's interesting because FTX sort of sits in the middle, kind of between that traditional finance world and pure DeFi. You know, we're, we're a centralized player. Um, we're a regulated exchange in a number of different ways, in a number of different countries. Um, so let's talk about maybe stocks for a second. Um, when you think about a traditional exchange like NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, that company is mostly operating a matching engine. It's basically a place where people can submit buy orders and sell orders. And when someone wants to buy at a price that's higher than someone who wants to sell or vice versa, uh, a trade occurs. And they kind of figure out who trades with whom and they report that trade outward. But there's a lot of other aspects to the trading that isn't covered by NYSE or NASDAQ. So for example, if you want to buy stock, you need money. Well, where does the money have to be? Well, NASDAQ doesn't hold your money. A broker holds your money. And often that broker um, isn't responsible for clearing the trades. And the clearing is the process of reporting the trades to another entity, which is like a central clearing clearing house called the DTCC. and so there's like the, the introducing broker who helps get your order to the exchange. There's a clearing broker dealer who's responsible for actually clearing those trades. There's the exchange itself. There's the underlying bank that holds the money. Sometimes there's a separate prime brokerage that's doing financing. There's sometimes stock loan desks at different banks. There's the clearing house. So there's all these different counterparties and intermediaries in this transaction. And it makes it very difficult for 
the average person to, for example, start a, a trading firm or to you know, gain access to algorithmic trading on an exchange. And on top of all of that, there are enormous fees and structural uh, barriers to entry for people trying to engage in this system. So for example, to actually get the full order by order market data feed from NASDAQ can cost tens of thousands of dollars per month. And if you're you know, a 21 year old you know, in your garage trying to build your own trading firm, you probably can't start up with paying you know, 30,000 a month for an order feed. Similarly, every connection to the exchange is going to require some thousands of dollars per month. And if you wanna have the, the latency advantage, so if you're gonna compete with other people on speed, for example, in an arbitrage trade, well, then you need to buy servers that are in the same physical location as like the NASDAQ or NYZ matching engines in New Jersey, and that's gonna cost you an enormous amount of money. So what crypto exchanges have done is sort of like completely turn this model on its head. So FTX and other crypto exchanges are what we call full stack products because we, yes, we own the matching engine, but we also own custody of the dollars and the crypto people use. We do all the clearing and settlement. Of course, with crypto, all the clearing and settlement is instant as opposed to taking multiple business days. We own the, the web UI application and the iPhone application, the Android application, and kind of everything in between. And that allows us to, first of all, compress the fees a lot. Second of all, make the whole setup operationally simpler. And three, really lower the barrier to entry for people to, to actually enter the trading ecosystem of crypto. So for us, we don't charge a single penny for market data. In fact, we don't even need you to sign up for an account to look at our market data. Um, we don't charge anything for order entry. We only need to charge per trade. So it makes it so much easier for people to enter this system, which is why there is such a large class of traders who are building like, algorithmic trading strategies and such on crypto who never would have been able to do so in traditional finance because of just how low the barrier to entry is in crypto. Yeah, and love all of that, but especially you mentioned data, right? And that's one thing that anytime I talk to someone about the crypto side of things, it's just the completely like available to anyone all of this data. And it's almost overwhelming. Um, I just remember the first time I saw like EtherScan as an example, I was blown away. I was like, there's, you can see every single transaction, every you know, you thing. can see like which address it's coming from, where it's going to, you can see like where it falls in this giant, giant list of transactions as they come. Right. And it just blew me away. So I think, you know, obviously what you're doing with FTX specifically, great crypto as a whole, um, opening up access. That's definitely a huge thing. But what I really, one thing I really wanted to focus on with you is what you said at the beginning, where FTX really sits in the middle between the more traditional side of things that everyone is really used to and kind of this emerging financial services space uh, on the decentralized side. And I think that that is going to be what gets millions of people into crypto, right? Something that looks, feels, and acts like the brokerage apps that they're used to, the ones that they don't need to worry about from a custody standpoint, what they're doing there. Because I think on the crypto side, it's very easily intimidating. Um, and just having an all-in-one place for it, um, you know, that's one thing with maybe Coinbase, right? And FTX. Like those are probably going to be the first places that most retail traders get access to crypto at all. So I think there's a lot to be said for being the sort of bridge into the space. And it's, it's a really, really important place to be. We need more of them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I think people don't really sort of appreciate that 
that role and how important it is in, in bridging traditional finance to crypto. So there's a few aspects to that. One is if you want people to onboard their dollars from their bank account into crypto, well, how do you do it? You have to be able to transfer your money to another bank that is basically being sort of white labeled or, or, or kind of wrapped by a crypto company like FTX. Um, but we can only do that because we are a regulated player in the US. We're a registered money service business. We have these money transmitter licenses. Um, we're sort of audited by you know, FinCEN. And so that's the only way that we are able to actually hook up to the banking system and receive incoming wire transfers or ACH or people being able to use their debit or credit cards to be able to deposit money. And the majority of people who are going to get into crypto are going to start with their own savings who want to invest in crypto. The second is that there is a major learning curve to crypto. Imagine if you're trying to explain you know, to your uncle uh, about how to use Bitcoin and you say, okay, it's, it's super simple. Like all you do is, you know, you set up this like browser extension in Chrome that has this 15 word private key, which like make sure you don't lose or you'll lose all your money forever. And then you have to go to this decentralized order book or AMM, like already you've lost like 99.99% of, of, of people. And that, that can't be their first entry point into crypto. It needs to be they click a button, they get some Bitcoin, they get a sense of how to transfer it, they kind of get a feel for what the other tokens are. Maybe they start to interact with a few interesting apps, you know, on Ethereum, but like slowly over time. And that's the only way we're going to grow the education. It can't be from zero to 100 overnight. And so that's why the overwhelming majority of people in the US who have a, you know, interest in crypto or holding crypto are doing so through Coinbase. They're not doing it through MetaMask. You know, that's still it's still a niche you know area of, uh, of crypto. Yeah. And I think that once you have skin in the game, it's like anything else. Right. If you own crypto, then you have something that you you know, there, there's financial incentive to, you know, to hold it, obviously. But um, but also to start interacting in different parts of the ecosystem. And it's never going to be for most people unless, you know, like you switching from James Street or Citadel and working at FTX. Right. If that's your livelihood, you obviously have multiple incentives for learning about it. But for the average retail investor, it's probably going to be more of a slow crawl, right? Um, because there is a lot of information. They're probably trading stocks as well. And it's a lot. So once you already own that crypto and you have, you've kind of already gotten started, I think that's like the biggest leap that you have to take. Um, but obviously the space is growing very quickly. So it's, it's a lot either way. And, and even for the hardcore DeFi people, you know, you won't kind of go like trade NFTs or participate in some sort of like yield protocol. Um, a lot of the ways that, for example, people were first onboarding into Solana was opening an FTX US account, depositing US dollars, buying Sol, and then moving that Sol into a phantom wallet, for example, and then using that to interact with DeFi. And so we're, we're sort of like the on-ramp into DeFi in a lot of cases. Yeah, no, definitely. It's more of just like, that's exactly what you just said is exactly how I did it too. So I definitely relate. Um, I, I do think also um, we're definitely in a bit of a crypto winter right now, so to speak. Um, but maybe maybe you can speak to 
I mean, there's a lot of ways that we can go with this. Um, but what's your opinion on kind of how we got to this part of, you know, where we're at in market cycle? I mean, markets cycle, right? So not too surprising, but um, we still see a lot of people building in the space. We still see a lot of activity. You know, I'm biased to Solana, right? Working with Hero, but see a lot of developer activity on Solana. The builders are still building. Um, but from more of like a, a macro viewpoint, even in the past like nine months, thinking of all the headlines that we've had and everything that's gone on, how did we get here? Um, I know that's kind of a big question, lots to unpack there. But. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll summarize by saying something more general about financial markets and then something specific about crypto. So on the, on the general front, we had many years of free money at zero interest rates or effectively zero interest rates. And so we had enormous growth in in the tech set sector and other sort of high growth areas for stocks, um, obviously in crypto as well, people sort of borrowing money and using that to invest, to speculate. And that meant general asset prices were going up for a very long time. And then everything sort of changed in this like post COVID world where now we're, we're here, we hear a lot about inflation and that suddenly came to an end. Now rates are non-zero again. They're not super high, you know, three-ish percent interest rate is not super high for people who remember, you know, what interest rates are used to be before that, this like long time period we've been in. But nevertheless, this paradigm shift on, on borrowing and lending of US dollars has spooked people into thinking that, you know, there's, there's a real change, there's a real cycle shift here. And so that's why first stocks in general have all gone down. I mean, you see some stocks are down anywhere between 50 and 90% from their all-time high. And people are, in general, generally speaking, in a risk-off scenario. They're dumping assets they think that could be risk assets. And so when they're looking across their portfolio, yes, they're going to sell stocks. Well, what else are they going to sell? Well, crypto is a pretty risky asset. Let's sell that as well. Let's do a flight to quality. And so crypto has not been able to escape from that net correlation, that correlation with general asset prices all going down across the world. But specific to crypto, of course, as crypto prices went down, it basically exposed a number of very vulnerable players in the ecosystem who were on borrowed time. You know, these are you know, lenders who were you know, speculating with customer assets or buying very you know, illiquid assets with customer assets. And suddenly when there was a kind of run on the bank, so to speak, they weren't able to fulfill all those customer demands and had to effectively shut down or go bankrupt. And then it didn't help to have uh, you know, an incident like with Terra Luna UST, where a thing which is called a stable coin, but wasn't actually a stable coin at all, um, basically you know, worked until it didn't. It was like this sort of perpetual motion machine of trying to keep a peg to the US dollar by using a very risky volatile asset and trying to automatically buy and sell to keep that asset in line. And once it stopped working, that uh, the whole ecosystem, which had been heavily invested in this Terra ecosystem had just collapsed. And a lot of people lost out that sort of triggered failures of large hedge funds like Three Arrows Capital, that causing again a run on all these lenders who had lent them enormous amounts of money at low interest rates. And that, that, that whole, whole incident brought down confidence in crypto as well. So that's sort of how we got here. But I think that by and large, that run is over. At least I think it is. I'm you know, knocking on the table here. Um, and 
in spite of all of that sort of fear and doubt and crypto prices going down and lenders going under, when I talk to venture capitalists, what they're all saying is you really wouldn't know it's a winter at our office because we're still taking enormous numbers of meetings every single week with founders who are looking for funding. We're fighting with other VCs to become the lead you know, fundraising you know, partner of some company. Um, and people are building, people are raising money, people are deploying capital. There's a lot of yet undeployed capital um, from these large crypto funds that have uh, raised pretty recently. You hear about new funds coming online and raising capital almost you know, every other week. And so I think those things are leading indicators of a recovery from all this. And it'll be really exciting to see the, the byproducts of all of that investment you know, in the coming you know, months to single digit years. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, there, there are a lot of positive developments going on right now. Those certainly don't get the headlines, right? But there's still money being deployed. There's still, you know, a lot of really cool things being built and it's not going to stop a lot of the, the players in the space from doing what they're doing. Um, it is interesting too. You talk a lot about the, you know, headlines we've seen with like three arrows capital and whatnot. And I, even that ties back to coming from the traditional background, right? Traditional finance background and having, you know, the context of going through 2008, say, right. And all of the things that we've seen between now and then having that context, you know, history doesn't repeat, but often rhymes. Right. I think having that context and building for the future with that in mind and trying not to repeat those mistakes, um, is, is something that's really important as well. And it's, it's something that's played out before. It's something I'm sure will play out again. Um, again, fingers crossed that we're hopefully through this <laughs> in this cycle, but, um, even just seeing public perception when all of this went down, um, you know, in recent months, I feel like it is an unfortunate and ugly reality of like an, an asset class maturing. And, you know, hopefully that has a lot of the bad actors have gotten washed out, but it's also, you know, this is something that we've seen in one form or another happen before. Um, maybe, maybe a little bit yeah. different, but definitely, you know, same, same, but different. And a lot of people are looking to see the sector fail. You know, it's, it's new, it's different, it's weird. Um, and when one hedge fund goes under and there's this series of events that happen as a result, the amount of press and just attention on that, these kinds of incidents are, are amplified compared to history, as you say, where these kinds of things aren't that rare. You know, a hedge fund going under, um, a lender blowing out. You know, these things are probably happening every couple of years in traditional finance, and that, on that on that like level of uh, you know the size of that kind of fund. And but we but we're not paying as close attention there, or we we're, we are easy easy to forget those kinds of incidents. Yeah, crypto is the flavor of the week or the month or the year or the past few years. Uh, so, you know, everyone's got it under a microscope and they're more trying to find things that align with their priors. Right. And you see a lot of haters out there for sure. So very easy to latch on to. Obviously a problem, but, you know, hopefully seeing that washed out. But this leads into one thing that I can't not talk about, which is regulation. And you're one of the best people to talk about this with, especially, um, which is what I thought about before this episode as well, because in the position you're in at FTX, also being within the US, it's just an interesting landscape right now from a regulatory standpoint, you have the opportunity to be in a lot of rooms that others aren't and being, you know, having in-person or virtual conversations with regulators and really trying to help shape the regulatory landscape of crypto in the U.S. Um, so I'd be curious to hear you talk about 
you know, that experience, first of all, but also for the people who really only see the headlines and see, you know, bits and pieces here and there, but not really getting a full cohesive story of crypto regulation. What are the issues that we're facing and where are we? Because there's the SEC, there's the CFTC, there's the IRS, there's tons of different you know, regulatory bodies in the states that, you know, are making comments, but where is the action actually happening and where do you think we're going there? Yeah, absolutely. I'll first say that one, it has been an amazing part of this job to be able to be face-to-face with, with lawmakers and, and policy and, and regulators and, and get that experience. And what we found was the door is really open to people and companies that are willing to go in and just educate and have open dialogue about what's going on and just be honest you know, not everything in crypto is perfect. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of noise and bad actors in crypto as well. And again, being honest about, about what we need to do to make this a safe industry that also allows for people to build and innovate is, ha- has been very welcome on, on the Hill. And that's been very exciting for, for us as a company. The, the primary issue with cryptocurrencies right now in the US is the, is the question of who regulates cryptocurrency trading. So for stocks, which are securities, or treasuries, which are securities, they have a very clear market regulator, and that is the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. And they have a very clear and well-defined path for two important components. One is, how do you register a new security to be able to list it on an exchange for trading? And two, how do you register as an exchange to allow people to put these registered securities on your exchange for people to actually trade. Now, separately, for commodity futures, like gold futures or oil futures, um, and with some other exceptions, like broad-based index futures for stocks, like a stock index future with enough different stocks in the index, those are regulated by a different market regulator the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, or CFTC. And we're one of the only countries in the world that has two different market regulators that kind of divide up the world of, you know, who is responsible for what. And there are some cases where they have sort of joint jurisdictions. An example would be, you know, a treasury future, where the treasury itself is a security, the future is a future. And so these are often trading on CFTC-regulated venues with joint oversight with the SEC. But for the most part, they divide the universe up. Now, what do you do with Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin is considered a commodity. But it's not, so it's neither a security, nor is it a commodity future. It's a spot commodity. And there currently is no clearly defined market regulator for Bitcoin. And so how is FTX US, for example, or Coinbase able to actually operate? Well, it's sort of weird. We, we operate as a money service business, which is sort of like how uh, MoneyGram is regulated. So we are really focused, our license is focused on regulating money that comes into and out of our company, our exchange. And that can be in the form of dollars or it can be in the form of cryptocurrency, but it doesn't really regulate the actual exchange itself. You know, all of the things that you would expect from a markets regulator like you know, anti-market manipulation and anti-spoofing and making sure there's no wash trading and, you know, just um, price circuit breakers on the exchange and different rules around how to operate a good exchange. And so 
we naturally will impose a lot of those rules ourselves. Like we prevent wash trading. We make sure there's no manipulation on the exchange. We make sure there's no you know, spoofing and layering and these kinds of you know, um, bad practices that can occur on an exchange, but there's no regulator for it. And so right now there's discussion on, in Washington over who should be the rightful regulator of those assets. And until there is such a thing, all of these exchanges like ourselves are operating in this regulatory gray area because you can't list something on our exchange that would be considered a security because then we'd be violating securities laws. We'd be offering you know, an unregistered security to unaccredited investors. Um, at the same time, there is no clear cut path to one determining what is a security because determining a security is like a very, it's a, it's a, it requires a legal test and that legal test has lots of different ways of interpreting it. And even if you wanted to list a security, there's no real way to register one, a digital asset security, because you know, a Ripple tokens are very different from registering you know, Apple stock. And then on top of that, even if you were able to register a security token with the SEC, how do you register an exchange that can be a digital asset exchange? Because again, the way that FTX is set up, as we said in the beginning of this podcast, is very different from how NASDAQ set up. You know, we also do custody and there's no clear cut to find out what a transfer agent means. And there's no clearing because it's, it's immediately settled and there's no separate broker. And so the whole model is different. So there's no easy way to sort of register as an exchange in the normal sense for the, in the SEC's eyes. And so that is the primary battleground right now for regulation in the US. And there have been a number of bills that have been proposed in Congress um, including a, a recent one by Senators um, Sabanow and Bozeman of the Senate Agricultural Committee. Um, brief note is that why the Agricultural Committee? Because the Agricultural Committee is the one that is has primary oversight over the CFTC because the CFTC has, among other things, corn futures and soybean futures, and you know these kinds of futures that are very important for the agricultural sector to be able to do hedging of their you know of their product. And so interestingly, because Bitcoin is considered a commodity, Bitcoin futures are under the CFTC as well. And therefore the Senate Ag Committee has oversight over the market regulator that has oversight over Bitcoin futures. And they proposed a bill that basically puts Bitcoin and Ether to commodity tokens underneath the CFTC. And getting that clarity through Congress would be really, really beneficial for the industry because then we'd be operating under a federally licensed regime. And that is really what we all want. We all, the, the main players in the US want regulation and clarity as much as possible because that's what gives institutional investors, for example, the ability to really put money into this and invest. And without that, we're not really going to be able to mature as an industry. Exactly. And I think to your last point, the, one of the biggest misconceptions I've found, whether it's talking to, you know, like friends and family that don't work in the industry, working my previous role with like crypto education for family offices, RIAs, there's such a common misconception that crypto people don't want regulation. And I think to your point, right, the ones who have that traditional background understand the importance of whether it's consumer protections or for whatever reason, like whatever, you know, angle you're talking from a regulatory standpoint, we want it, we want the clarity. And I think that it's definitely been sort of a limbo for a lot of people who want to get involved, not having that. Um, and that's really interesting about kind of like the agriculture committee too. I never even, never even would have thought of that, but I was even going to ask, I think 
it was quite a while back now to probably early this year was um, Caroline Crenshaw, I believe was the one who proposed having not the SEC, not the CFTC, but creating an entirely new regulatory you know, regime that would particularly or like specifically be catering to crypto, DeFi and anything that's developed in that realm. Is there a reason that, you know, I mean, people have very mixed reviews on this, so I'm curious for your take, but do you think that would ever work? And do you think that rather than that, the best way to move forward and, you know, everyone wants clarity, right, is kind of fitting this new space into more of a traditional framework with, say, an SEC or CFTC? Yeah, I don't know if you know the the XKCD comic where, you know, one person complains, we have six standards and there's way too many different standards. And someone says, I know, I'll propose a new standard that will fix them all. And then the (laughs) third slide says, well, now we have seven standards. Um, So it it is a little bit what the problem would be here. You know, it, it was the Commodity Exchange Act when it was passed was the thing that created the CFTC. And already it's been considered, uh, a major missed opportunity in Dodd-Frank's legislation to combine that CFTC and SEC back together into one market regulator. I think most people would agree that trying to create a third when it's already difficult enough for those first two to first decide jurisdiction and work together in some, some circumstances would just never happen or be practical at all. But on top of that, at the end of the day, when you're trading Bitcoin on an exchange, it's a thing with a number that goes up and down. And if you buy it low and sell it high, you get cash. And if you buy it high and sell it low, you lose cash. And in that sense, it's like anything else. Um, I mean, Chair Gensler talked about this a lot, that like, you know, it should be similar regulation for a similar thing, which is a financial object that trades on an exchange. And I don't think that we need to throw out decades of regulation and legislation and market practice and all of the self-regulatory organization learnings that we've had to just just because it's a slightly different kind of asset. Um, I do think that there needs to be some new rules and there needs to be some uh, exceptions made to be able to understand why this is different. But I think starting from scratch is sort of impractical. I, it is, it's ambitious and it's understandable where that desire comes from because they don't really neatly fit into the security bucket or the commodity bucket or the futures bucket. But it's sort of besides the point. It's something that people want to invest in. We want to protect those investors. We want to give them clear disclosure over what are the things you're investing in and have safe rules for being able to trade these things with one another. And I think that's very very much in in common with the mission of both the CFTC and the SEC and wouldn't require completely starting from scratch. For sure. And in your opinion, you know, everyone could guess on this, right? But what do you think the time frame would be for bridging this regulatory gap? I mean, we saw, you know, a lot of people were worried earlier this year when like the tone was sort of mixed on, you know, do, do regulators seem like more pro crypto? Do they seem not like people take the headlines that they see very seriously with that, right? Like lots of, lots of speculation as always, but the tone seems pretty positive, right? Moving forward. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be flushed out, but what do you see, you know, again, all opinions here kind of guessing, right? But what do you see the timeline sure. for that, you know, being more, that clarity being delivered? So support for cryptocurrencies in general is not a universally accepted fact in Washington, but support for regulation of crypto is a universally accepted fact. And now that there's been enough bills by high ranking members of these committees, um, in, in Congress 
I have a lot of optimism that something is going to be passed in the near-ish future. With with hope, that would be in 2023. Probably can't is not going to happen before the midterm elections. Um, but once those are done, and you know people can focus on legislative priorities instead of campaigning, I think we will start to see some real movement in a few bills. Um, we're hopeful on the Stabenow Bozeman bill. Um, there's also a bill being proposed specifically for stable coins, a smaller bill to be able to regulate um, either banks that want to issue stable coins or private issuers that want to be able to be licensed to be able to issue stable coins. And these are like real stable coins back, you know, 100% with US dollars. Um, and that's also going to be very important for, for crypto, for DeFi, which relies so heavily on stable coins. And so uh, optimistically this coming year, which would be great. We will we'll set a reminder for, for six months from now to come back to that. But I'm hoping you're right. Um, have you seen, in terms of like different sides, they're both sides of the aisle, right? Have you seen, is it pretty much from both coming from both sides? Do you see it coming more from like Republican versus Democrat? Or is it really more bipartisan and like kind of the efforts here? It's really a bipartisan issue. Um, we had the pleasure of attending an event um, by the Problem Solvers Caucus. And this is a caucus in the House consisting of equal number of Democrat and Republicans, all who kind of come together to try to actually solve problems instead of, you know, get at each other's throats and try to just sort of take, you know, partisan politics to the extreme. And they've been very successful at trying to, you know, actually get down to the heart of issues behind various problems that we face all over the place, not just in crypto, but in particular, they're very interested in crypto. They invited us to talk to them and for us to teach them more about the industry, for them to ask us you know, very honest questions about you know, how it should be regulated, about the, the good and bad that they're seeing in the market. And that, again, a very hopeful sign. This is really not a partisan issue at all. We have probably 75 million people in the US with crypto accounts. That means that there are people in you know, virtually every you know, jurisdiction in the US, including in over overrepresented in typically underrepresented communities like rural communities, minorities, so, such that this is going to be an important issue on the ballot for, for, for everyone. And so I, I think that this has really transcended the, you know, left versus right politics that we usually see with everything else. I was going to say, we love to hear that because there are so many things that never, never will, um, probably. But going going more globally here, right? So FTX, obviously, you're you're running the the U.S. side of things, but FTX is very much global. You have presence all over the place. And um, what does the international landscape look like from a regulatory standpoint? I know it differs quite a bit, and you know there are some very cri- pro crypto countries versus some that you know are very much on the opposite side of that. But what it, what does that look like, um, at least from like a thousand foot view? And do you think that the U.S. has put itself in a position to be behind or put it, put itself in, a, you know, I, I wouldn't say like in a position to not succeed. These are just arguments that you see online, right? But do you think that it has put the U.S. at a disadvantage to be taking quite a while to come to a conclusion from a regulatory standpoint versus other jurisdictions? Like, what have you seen uh, from a global standpoint? Sure. So FTX operates in around 180 countries. And we deal with 180 different regulators and 180 different views on crypto regulation. And we also are 
again, when you, your earlier comment that people have this misconception that we either are not regulated or don't want to be regulated, we have something like 100 licenses. I mean, we have licenses in, in the EU and UK and uh, applying for one in Singapore, and we have one in Australia and Japan, Dubai, Cyprus, um, payment rails in various African countries. Um, really, we're sort of all over the place. And each one of those was its own major effort by our team to be able to get explicitly licensed in so much of the world. Um, I would say US is somewhere in the middle of the pack. There are a few places that are really are ahead of the game. Um, it, and, you know, in, in strange places like that you would not have expected in terms of thinking about the global kind of financial uh, markets. So like Gibraltar and Bahamas and places that have actually worked on specific licensure for crypto and crypto derivatives. And then you have people who are countries that are way far behind and either sort of out, outright ban it or really haven't thought about regulation much at all. And many, we believe, are looking to the U.S. for leadership. So what the U.S. does and what they permit and don't permit, we think is going to have a profound effect on the way that other countries choose to think about regulated cryptocurrency as well. And that's why it's so important to, you know, to get it right here. And it's not too late. Um, we, we do think that the support for proper clarity and, and, and regulation in the U.S. Is, is growing and has reached a critical mass and we'll, again, hopefully see progress very soon on that front. And then I think we'll see a real sort of domino effect in the rest of the world um, for other countries to establish clearer rules for not just exchanges, but for companies that want to create products in you know, the crypto and Web3 worlds. Yeah. And it's, it's so awesome with like the kind of global perspective and the global reach that FTX has. It's been really cool to watch how you're, how it's all unfolding with, you know, your strategy, whether that's just the U S and NFTs and getting into stocks, which, um, I think the last time we saw each other, you guys were, were working on getting stocks on, on FTX us. And it was kind of like, wow, you're, you're adding stocks. It's usually different platforms adding crypto, right? So it, it's cool to see, you know, how that's all unfolding. Love to see that you guys are helping, you know, kind of shape things from a regulatory standpoint and having that voice in Washington is I think really critical. Um, what, what is FTX's strategy as a whole in terms of working with those different regulatory institutions, helping them figure out, you know, moving forward, you know, what they want to do. I'm sure it's a lot. Um, and it depends very quite a bit by country, but I know that it seems at least from the outside that you guys are super, you know, you want to be involved in that. You want to help shape it in any way that you can. So in every country, it really starts with us making direct co contact with regulators and saying, we would like to become explicitly licensed in your jurisdiction. You know, in some places they might not even have a license yet, or might not have one that really works for crypto. But we don't just want to you know, operate and hope for the best. We want to actually get explicit oversight from regulators. We think that is really the only way forward to again build this mature industry. So sometimes we will go to the financial regulator and say, okay, well, we see you have these licenses for CFDs and these licenses for brokers and these licenses for banks and these licenses for money transfer. You know, can we glue all those together into one mega license and that can be the one that we use for crypto or or is there something else? Are you working on different licenses? If so, can we help advise you on the important aspects and the unimportant aspects for such you know, licensure um, to, for example, make sure that it's easy for having crypto and crypto derivatives on the same platform and regulating those two things together, for example. So 
uh, that's always the the entry point into the in, into these regulatory spheres is for us to really walk in through the front door and try to get these explicit licenses, which has worked out really well. Um, one one fact is that FTX globally is explicitly licensed in countries that make up more than half of the world's GDP. So we, we really cover a significant amount of, of the globe in terms of explicit regulation, which is, which is really great and exciting for us. Well, I'm excited to see how this progresses. That's how I always feel about crypto though, right? There's always so many different things going on and always things changing, which is super fun. Um, so kind of want to wrap things up with two big questions because I like big questions and I, you know, obviously working in the space where I, I like to call myself, um, like preg, like, a cautiously optimistic, pragmatically optimistic, maybe. Um, but we hope that crypto will, you know, obviously grow, but two questions for you. If crypto in, you know, three, five, 10 years from now, if crypto, you know, wins, if crypto grows and we see that this, you know, this industry is flourishing and just doing incredibly well, what will the main reason for that be? What will the reason be for its success? And if crypto, not that I, you know, foresee this happening, but if crypto failed, say worst, worst case scenario, all of this goes up in flames. What would the reason for that be? Yeah, absolutely. I'll answer the second question first. So I think it fails if we either are un unable to um, properly regulate crypto. It's really a combination of either not regulating crypto, but continuing to sort of bring enforcement against companies trying to, uh, enforcement action against companies trying to operate in this space and in operating within this sort of legal gray zone, or things that explicitly ban parts of crypto, like explicitly ban stable coins. Um, I think that's going to be the thing that sort of makes crypto eventually die out. I think what's going to make it really achieve that global adoption is going to be completing the loop of allowing people to transact with cryptocurrencies, both in the real world and sort of in virtual worlds together um, in a way that is seamless. You know, I think... There was some survey I read somewhere that, you know, more than 60% of merchants are trying to figure out a strategy for accepting crypto as payments. If that reaches that critical mass in the next two to three years, I think that will greatly incentivize the industry to mature and develop and for this to be a more um, globally accepted form of, you know, digital, digital value transfer. And that, and that in itself is going to help people want to build more applications on top of that. It's going to change the way applications are created and thought about. It's going to change the, the, the way that people think about you know, metaverse transactions and DeFi applications and wealth distribution and remittances and everything above. Um, I think if it really never reaches that final loop of making it easy for people to use crypto every day, I think it's going to take a lot longer to get there. Definitely agree. And we've come full circle, right? So bridging the gap, right? Having, you know, the more traditional world and traditional systems that we're used to and making it seamless. I think that's the, the bridge in between on that is going to be critical to, to its success in the long run. So definitely agree there. Uh, well, thank you so much for being on, Brett. I'm a huge fan. I've told you that before, but I'm really glad to have you on as my first guest. And I think we started it off in the best way possible. Um, so thank you again. Thank you to everyone for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode.
Thank you so much. This was awesome. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency.